If you open up your Bibles, we are going to get into uh, Matthew again, Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. Oh, and, and here's another. I, I knew there was something else. Uh, this being the, the 500th anniversary, actually it's on October 31st, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 thesis, the 95 things he wanted to debate within the church, the Roman Catholic Church, um, it's the 500th anniversary. There's actually a group of churches getting together tonight at Bethany on the Hill in Thousand Oaks, and they're, they're going to have a, a Sunday service, and it's, it's to celebrate the Reformation. We've been invited to come. Um, and they say, if you come, just they're going to have a pie social afterwards. So if you want to come, and that's actually where you have your kids going to Awana, right? They, so it's up in Thousand Oaks, and Pastor Lance Quinn is a good guy. I, go to, I have a Bible study with him on Thursday mornings that I go to. So uh, anyway, so that's, that's out there for you. It's at 5 p.m. against Bethany on the Hill, all right? Hey, let me read, and uh, we'll get things rolling here. And when he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? That's option one, not a good option. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Hmm. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let me continue. What do you think? He continues with them, Jesus talking to the religious leaders. Again, it's in public. It's at the temple. So this is a public thing going on. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, the son, answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he, the father, went to the other son and said the same. And the second son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Wow. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, how they turned and repented and followed God, even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe in him. Let, let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, as, as we read so many of these stories in the, in the life of, of Jesus, Lord, I, I thank you, Jesus, for well, just the patience you showed. But Lord, I, also, I pray that we would also not, uh, not miss the, the strength of authority that you display here and, and what you call people to, Lord, what you call us to to repent of our ways, to see you for who you really are, and to believe in you. Lord, I thank you for this word. I pray now that you would open our eyes, God, that you'd make our hearts responsive to your word. Lord, that you would use your word to uh, have spiritual surgery going on. Spirit, take the word, the scalpel of the word, this living and active and sharper than two-edged sword, Lord, I pray that you'd use that to, to, to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, that, that by that, you would change and conform and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we, uh, as we go through this now, Lord, I pray for clear thinking, 
but also uh, personal reflection and self-evaluation. God, change us and mold us and use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I mentioned, uh, 500 years ago, the, the Reformation started. And it was called a Reformation, not a revolution, but it ended up acting like a revolution. Um, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He was not someone from the outside. He was someone from the inside. And he had been struggling with how to be in a right relationship with God, this whole thing, the righteousness of God. And as he's, he's struggling, just in the course of what's going on, he also sees something happening even in his local town. John Tetzel was a representative sent by Rome, and he was to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica back in Rome. He was on a church fundraising mission, and here's how they did it. He was selling indulgences. If you buy an indulgence, it knocks off time in purgatory. You pay for your sins. And you can also buy indulgences for others. Does that sound biblical? Exactly. It wasn't. But Martin Luther, he saw that and he's saying, wait a second, that's not what the Bible says. And so that's what led him. That was the environment. And he wanted to reform what was going on in the church. He thought this was being done without the Pope's knowledge. So he, he posts these 95 reasons or thesis that he wants to debate within, because it was at a university, the University of Wittenberg. He was a, a priest teaching there, and he wanted to debate it amongst the faculty and the representatives of the Roman Catholic Church. He thought it was just, oh man, let's just get this cleared up. It's no big deal. He was called to the, to the court there. I mean, he was... He was violently opposed by Rome when they heard what he was doing. And in 1521, he was standing before the Diet at Worms, looks like Worms, but he was standing before a court, a religious council, and they told him, hey, recant of all that you've taught. Repent. Bow before the authority of Rome. That's what was at issue there. Who do you think you are? Behind the representatives there at, the, at, this, at this council was the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And here's what Martin Luther said in response, and I love this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. What was his authority? The Word of God. Now remember, the Word of God is not just a book. It is God's self-revelation. We can know there's a God from creation. Creation declares all the time that there's a glorious, mighty Creator God who's powerful. And then we all have a conscience of right and wrong, and we know that we violated, we've done something wrong, and because of that we stand guilty. That's what Romans 1 and 2 say, in essence. But it does not, that knowledge alone does not save us. We needed God to come and make Himself known. And He did that through the prophets, through godly men of the past, but ultimately the main revelation through Jesus Christ. What we have in, in this book is a collection of 66 different books, but they all have the same message, the progressive unveiling of God to, his, to the people to know Him, to know what righteousness is and how to be in right relationship with Him. This is the authority. We don't worship a book. We worship the God of the book. But this, this is not opinion, folks. This is God saying, what's what? It's an issue of authority. Who's the authority? That's why we're a simple church, but we will always, always preach and teach out of this book. Our kiddos in the back, are getting good teaching. It's a solid curriculum 
based on the Word of God. And again, this is not to say we have to teach perfectly and, and that's all. We have to demonstrate that, right? We have to demonstrate changed lives and lives of love, but, but it's a, a life based on the Word of God. That's, it's an authority issue, okay? In this passage we're looking at today in Matthew 21, that's the key issue is the authority issue. Who do you think you are, Jesus? You're on our turf now, the temple, right? The big hitters are confronting Jesus. And this this passage kicks off a whole section all the way to the end of chapter 22 where Jesus is being confronted by the religious establishment. And it's all about his authority and the source of his authority. And, And this word authority that's being challenged is called exousia. It's not his power. His power to do things, that's, been, that's obvious, it's unmistakable, but the question is, what's the authority? Where are you getting this from? And, and this means the right to make decisions, to act. It's from a position, well, a position you hold so you have the authority to do what you do. And it was challenged right here in this, in this first passage. We see that word repeated four times right away. And so you have to understand, remember, if you've ever taken a how to study the Bible class, one of the key things you look for when you're just reading a passage for the first time is you look for repetition. Okay, that's one of the hints you're looking for, and it's repeated in these in this two verses four times. Authority is the key issue. And matter of fact, this, this whole section, all the way to the end of chapter 22, it has the authority challenge. Jesus is challenged about his authority. Then we have three parables where Jesus judges the authority of the six shepherds of Israel. Then he has three debates exposing these six shepherds. All right, and then the final one is Jesus' authority is established because he asked them a question about Scripture that they can't answer. They're stumped, and it says that they asked him no more questions. So that's, that's, what's gonna ha- that's what we have ahead of us for the next several weeks. And, and he uses, and we'll look at the first of the three parables today, where he indicts the religious leaders for failing in their duty as the shepherds of Israel failing their duty of recognizing him as the Messiah King. Again, I talked about this about a month ago. He's in Jericho. Who calls out his true identity? The two blind men. They were physically blind, but they were spiritually able to see. The evidence was overwhelming even to the blind. Isn't that amazing? And here we have him going after them for their hard-hearted rejection of him. And we'll see him, this whole thing of asking or answering with a question and then using parables and illustrations, going back and forth. It's a very, it's a rabbinical way of of handling debate. And again, this isn't about power. The power that Jesus has is unmistakable. But where did they they say he got his his power from? Satanic, right? That's not what the people saw. But the religious leaders, that was their verdict earlier in Matthew 12. They're asking, who do you think you are? Who said you could do what you are doing? And who did you learn from? Because back then, if you wanted to become a rabbi, you needed to be trained under the proper training method, and that was overseen by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling court, the top 70 religious leaders in the land. And Jesus had never gotten their teaching. Who do you think you are, you Jesus? Where's your credentials? You know, in my, in my office, I have my ordination certificate. Went through the ordination process. I got it. It was really significant. In my life, it was like, wow, these guys praying over me. I did all jump through the hoops. But man, it, there's, something, there's something spiritual about this. It's really cool. But Jesus didn't have anything to hang on his wall. But that's okay. Because whenever he taught, what did the people say? Wow. He teaches with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. And who are they? The religious, religiously trained men. He spoke with authority. You have heard that, I, that it was said unto you. That's the Sermon on the Mount. He says this all the time. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He goes off his own authority constantly. Jesus' authority was unmistakable to all from the very beginning Yet the religious establishment has all along challenged him, but especially here, because it's not just a Pharisee that's challenging him. It says the chief priests 
and the elders of the land. The big hitters are coming after him. But early on in his, in his ministry, Jesus, his authority was recognized by a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Hey, I have a, my servant is sick. You know, can you please heal him? But you don't need to come because I know that you have authority to do it. It was recognized by a Gentile. The crowds continuously saw and marveled at his teaching authority and its power. Even in his hometown, even though they rejected him, they still recognized, wow, where does he get this authority to teach? His authority was seen in his power over demons. They had to obey him. They were afraid of him. Not just because of his power, but because of his position, his authority over them. He had authority... We see when he claimed to forgive sins. When did he do that? Did he ever forgive anyone's sins? There's a famous story. Come on, answer me. Come on. The prostitutes, that's the main one. It was the paralytic that was lowered through the roof because he said, hey, my, the first thing he said to this paralytic was, my son, your sins are forgiven. And while all the religious leaders said, oh, they're grumbling. Oh, who does he think he is? Only God can do that. And he says, well, I'll tell you what. What's easier to do, to say you're forgiven or to show you by healing this guy that I've got the power to back up my claim? And that's where he said, hey, get up and walk. If he's been paralyzed for most of his life, what are his muscles like? It's called atrophy, right? It didn't just say he kind of slowly got up. It says he jumped up, grabbed his mat, and then went away rejoicing, jumping, praising God. Talk about public and instantaneous and full. Amazing. But he claimed that he had the authority to forgive sins and he proved it with his miracle. He had the authority to do that. But even the Pharisees recognized only God can do that. By his power to calm the storm, he ceased. He didn't do anything except when he was you know, asleep in the boat and his disciples, these fishermen, are scared to death. What does he do? He just gets up and say, be still. And what does it do? His authority over creation. By his own claims, he claimed to have God-given authority. And, and he had just done a major act of authority. Before this scene here where he's confronted by the chief priests and elders, what did he do that was a, a definite sign of authority? He cleansed the temple. What right do you have to do this, Jesus? He goes, watch me. He's never hid where he's from. And he claimed to have authority from God. We see that in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. He is the king. Folks, th this authority thing is a rough thing for us to, uh, to process as American Christians because we're in a country where if we don't like who's running it, what do we do? We vote them out. Sign petitions, we'll impeach them, whatever it is. We're independent Americans, but folks, in, in God's economy, there's a ruler and there his, are his subjects. And if you're not one of his subjects, you are outside of the kingdom. So this issue is, is not a democracy. I'm not your king, by the way. I don't claim to be, but I'm just telling you what Jesus says. He's our king, all right? And a king demands what? Obedience. Because he, he's deserve, deserving of our obedience, especially this king, right? I mean, the public had already seen his authority, that it stood over and above that of the religious leaders to their shame. His authority, his teaching, it's, it's so much better than the scribes and the Pharisees. They had already seen the contrast, and they were ashamed by it. In Jesus' actions, you have to understand that, that God, through his king, Son of David was fulfilling his promise in Ezekiel 34, 24. I'm going to turn to that real quick. Ezekiel 34, 24. The whole chapter of 34 is about God going after the, the shepherds of Israel. And who are the shepherds of Israel? It was the religious leaders. They were to, supposed to shepherd, lead the people towards God, lovingly care for them. And in chapter 34, Ezekiel's... Oh, about the, the, what, the mid three, or I mean the late 600s, early 500s. That's his time of ministry, just before the Babylonian captivity and into it. And, and we see Ezekiel going after 
the, the religious leaders. And here in 34, it says this in verse 24. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. It's right after a whole section saying, I have to go rescue the sheep. You sick shepherds, you religious leaders, you fleece the flock, you lead them astray. They're sick, they're helpless, they're dying. That's your responsibility, and he judges them. He says, I myself have to come and rescue them. But he says specifically that I myself, and, and who's going to roll over them? David, my prince. Well, David had died about 400 years earlier, so who's he talking about? The son of David, Jesus. He said a shepherd was coming, and we see that here. Jesus judging the sick shepherds. He's living out Ezekiel 34, and he's fulfilling the promise that the true shepherd has come. What did Jesus call himself? I am the good shepherd. We've got to see what's happening here. Jesus the king is judging with authority, and he's now specifically evaluating questioning and going to condemn the religious leaders, the supposed shepherds of Israel. That's why I called this, you know, the, king, the king's authority to judge the shepherds of Israel. So we see initially in this, in this confrontation here. And when he entered the temple, he'd already cleansed the temple the day before. He's coming back in. It says that, the, that basically the, the big hitters confronted him. Members of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests were basically the high priest's assist, associates, the assistants. And the elders of the land, those guys all made up the Sanhedrin. So now the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, but it's not like our Supreme Court, it's seven judges who just, you know, they're on there for life and they wear the robes. We hardly ever hear about them unless one's getting ready to die, right? Balance of power. They're, they had authority to make serious, specific uh, decisions over the life of the people. And they're coming to confront him. And he's in the temple. And what is he doing in this temple? It says, he, as he was teaching, he cleansed the temple, tried to get rid of the corruption and, and contamination the day before, and now he's to, they're teaching the people. What do you think he's teaching about? What has been his message all along? You especially see it on the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God. He's teaching the people because they've been led astray by six shepherds and now he's being confronted by these six shepherds because they've been challenged. They were embarrassed the day before. You've made it a house of, a den of thieves. Who did he say that to? To the people in general when he was cleansing the temple? Who was in charge of that? The religious leaders. The Sadducees, the high priests, the chief priests, they were in charge of what was going on up there, and they turned it into a marketplace. He had called them out publicly. Talking about this in our life group on Thursday. How big was the Temple Mount? I keep telling you. It's like three football fields. And the outer portion of it, the temple was right in the middle, but the outer portion, the, the courts of the Gentiles, a, a significant part of it had become a marketplace. It was never supposed to be that. It was supposed to be outside the walls. And they had turned it into a marketplace. They had turned what was supposed to be a place for the Gentiles, a place for them to come and worship God, the one true God, and they had turned it into a place of fraud, deceit, and thievery. They had put up a roadblock to the Gentiles. They had, they had put up a roadblock to the mission God had called them to. That's why Jesus, when he cursed the fig tree, he was cursing Israel. Israel, of that generation, had signs of life. The tree with the leaves, they had signs of life. They had the sacrifices going on. They had the temple. But their worship was empty. They're going through the motions without truly honoring God. And because of it, there was no fruit. A fig tree is supposed to produce fruit that you can eat. That's the purpose of the tree. The tree didn't produce the fruit. It failed in its mission. Israel failed in its mission. The temple contaminated the religious leaders, the ones who are responsible for that. And now he's confronting them here. And why doesn't he just say real quick, well, you guys have to just be done with it? Well, you have to understand the place that they played in the life of Israel. They were the celebrities. They had the power, the position, the authority. So what he has to do is answer their questions, but show that he is the Messiah by how he handles the word of God, Torah, 
And that's exactly what he does by the way of parables and then answering their objections later on in chapter 22. The king's authority to judge. So he's confronted. They come up to him as he was teaching. And by the way, to teach is to act with authority. Okay? That's, that's what he was doing. And they said, who are you? And he even says to them later, truly I say to you. He's, he's, he speaks on his own authority. They keep wanting to know, who who do you think you are? And he says, well, let me ask you, who do you think I am? Right? He turns the question on them. I'm getting behind in my notes here. And by the way, I don't blame the chief priests and the elders for asking him this. They're supposed to challenge some supposed teacher that's showing up on the courts. But the thing was, for three years, he had given obvious evidence. It was so obvious that blind men knew who he was. That the crowds a couple days before, huge crowds, hundreds of thousands, were singing what? Hosanna to the son of David. They knew who he was. They correctly identified him. And the crowds, the religious establishment would look down on. They had a total arrogance toward them. They were condescending. They're the religiously ignorant. No, they saw clearly. Matter of fact, in the temple... What, what, were the, what were the religious really mad about? Children were calling him Hosanna, the son of David. They could see. Guys probably going through their bar mitzvah. They knew just enough of the, of the word, and yet they could see. Wow. What do you think got in the way of these chief priests and, and uh, elders of the land? Pride, arrogance, hard-heartedness. Because at this point, they've rejected him for three years. Again, I'll always draw this back to ourself. How do we act like them? Do we? Do any of you? Do I? How have I been hard-hearted towards God? How do I not submit to him? Are there things I hold back from his rule in my life? Again, you, only you can answer that. That's between you and God. Is there things that you're holding back from giving over to God that you know if Jesus were standing there, you'd go, come on, come on, Brunzeal, you know. Come on, Alfred. Come on, Matthew. Go down the list, right, everyone here. What does Jesus say to you that you need to give over? Okay, let's keep moving. And by the way, this confrontation is not a sincere one. I got to say that. Jesus, by his teachings, his miracles, his authority, his power, it's been on public display for three years. It's just the confrontation now is heightened because he's on their turf, and he had publicly embarrassed them and undermined their authority, and their position and power were seriously challenged by this Jesus. So he answers them to their question, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And so I have for point B, it says confusion of the religious leaders. They weren't confused. Their response just shows that they, were, uh, they wanted to escape the ramifications. I just used it for preaching alliteration. But they answered him. The question is this. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they, the religious leaders, discussed it among themselves. They have to go to a side. They'd little do a side, you know, a side conference over here. Okay, here, guys, how are we going to answer this? And notice, what is their focus of how to answer? Is it about the truth or the consequences of their answer? It's the consequences. What is the essence of integrity? Integrity is to know the right thing and then do it. It's an issue of truth and then acting on the truth. These were not men of integrity. Their aside shows they're all about pragmatism. What's going to be the end of this here? Instead of saying, you know, here's the truth. Here's who he is. And just so you know, it was not all of the Sanhedrin that was this way. How come I can say that? I, I know of two guys who didn't. Joseph, Mary of Mathia, and... The famous guy from John chapter 3, Nicodemus. They became followers, all right? So there is, there's hope, right? Even in this, there's a hint of hope in the midst of this, but we can't miss what's going on, this confrontation and how Jesus 
responds to them. His counter to these leaders is, what was the source of John the Baptist's authority for his message and ministry? That's the essence of what he's responding to them. Jesus was tying, in in asking him this way, Jesus was tying the source of his own authority to that of John's. See, their question is, where do you get the authority? He says, well, hey, this John the Baptist, what was his authority? If you answer me, then I'll tell you where my authority. He was tying him and John the Baptist together, but wasn't that appropriate? What was John's message? I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not Moses. I'm not the prophet. I'm the forerunner. He quoted Isaiah 40, verse 3. He quoted Malachi 5, 2, I think it is. He said, I'm the forerunner. And then when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said on two separate days and even sent some of his own followers to follow him. I must become lesser. He must become greater. My time of ministry is coming to an end. I've I've prepared the hearts of the people. I've had a message of repentance. Repent of your sins, you Jews, and be baptized. What was baptism for back then? Was it for Jews? It was not. It was for Gentiles who wanted to become God followers of Yahweh. But he was telling the Jews, no, you have to repent too. Don't think just because you're born a Jew, you are saved. God could create Jews out of these rocks. You notice some of the things I'm bringing Matthew 3 into play here, John chapter 1. And matter of fact, when John saw the Pharisees, the religious leaders who came out to hear this baptizer out in the wilderness, what did he say to them? Oh, Matthew chapter 3. You brood of vipers. He called out the religious leaders. What are vipers? Snakes. What is that immediately drawing to the minds of not just the Pharisees who are hearing this, all the Jews who heard this is a public confrontation back there in Matthew chapter 3. It's Genesis chapter 3, the the snake of the garden, the, the, the great villain of Scripture. The guys who were the supposed most self-right, or not self, they, they were supposedly the most righteous in the eyes of the people. And what does John call them? You brood of vipers. Who warned you about the wrath to come? There's a judgment coming. How did you know about that, that you guys needed to repent? You snakes. They weren't too happy with John either, were they? But what did the people consider John? A prophet. That's why so many flocked to him. When he came, they're like, God is speaking again. Because remember, before John, there had been 400 years without a recognized prophet from God amongst the people. Malachi was the last. They call it a period of silence. And not that God wasn't speaking through his word, but there was no new prophet on the scene. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist shows up, and he had on some major, even his clothing looked like that of a prophet, like Elijah. The last of the, actually the greatest of the prophets was Elijah and the miracles he did. So Jesus is saying, hey, John the Baptist, what do you guys say? They have to have an aside. And it's not about the truth, it's about the consequences. If we say it's from heaven, well, that would indict them. Because Jesus would say, well, okay, if it's from heaven, what was his message? Repent and believe. And then what did he say about me? I'm the Messiah. Then why don't you guys believe? If you say from man, well, the crowds right away, why, why, are, they, why are the crowds even bring brought into this? Well, they wanted power and prestige because that's what they had, and they had control over the people. It's the way they liked it. They were living the fat life. They were like the royalty of the country, living the way they did. Oh, if we say this, the people say, well, wait a second, you're wrong. He's definitely a prophet. So they're weighing out the consequences, and they couldn't come to a decision. So what do they say? We know not. We don't know. Was that a truthful answer? No. My goodness. My goodness. Even in this nebulous, we do not know, they were revealing their lack of true authority. Why do I say that? Here's the deal. John was a major public figure with a message supposedly from God. Their job in Israel was not just to teach the people, it was also to protect the people from false teachers. 
So if they don't know who John was or where, what kind of authority he had or what was the source, if it was divine or not, if they're not going to make a judgment about that, they had no spiritual authority. They were failing in their mission as shepherds over Israel. They're supposed to protect the flock from false teachers or say if it's divine, embrace him and say, yeah, we need to listen to him. They, doing this, by doing nothing, they lost their authority. They had none. They showed their spiritual hard-heartedness, that they had no authority, no ability to discern. That is one of the key things for shepherds. Elders, if you look at the, the qualities or the, the, yeah, the, the characteristics and abilities of elders, paid elder, that's what I am, a pastor, or unpaid elders, Scott and Sam and also Patrick, we're shepherds. That pastor means to shepherd. The one skill I'm supposed to have is apt to teach so that we can teach doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's the skill, okay? Qualities, you have to have a life that's we're growing and changing. We're not perfect, but generally above reproach. The shepherd concept in Israel is the same for the church. They had failed in their job. If John was a heretic, why didn't you call him out? Why wouldn't you do it right then and there in front of everybody at the temple? If John was divine, why didn't you embrace him when he was here? And why, didn't you, why don't you believe his message about and Jesus saying this about me? You guys get the, what's happening here? They wanted their position, their power. They loved it the way it was. How dare you, Jesus? How dare you? Well, he dares, doesn't he? Because they do not answer, they show their dishonesty. He's not, now he's not required to answer them their question. But it's sad because in their dishonesty, we see how the people have been led by sick shepherds. But now we see in this parable, the first of three parables, we see Jesus, he's condemning the religious leaders. This first one, he starts to go on the attack. Okay, he takes the initiative here. And they stand condemned. They have lost their right to act as judges over him and over the people. He exposes their willful disobedience, their lack of soft hearts towards God, the love of position and power rather than the truth, and they receive full condemnation and even potentially excommunication from the kingdom because he's been saying all along, the kingdom of God is at hand. So here's the story. What do you think? A man had two sons. It's a simple story, right? There's a father, two sons, a vineyard, and the, the response of the two sons. And it's very, very, you know, it's very, grapes and vineyards were very, you know, well known to the people. And it was very common for a father to ask his son to go do the work. Simple story, all right? Matter of fact, <laughs> vineyard was one of the pictures of Israel. We see that in Hosea and many passages, actually. But it's a simple story, all right? The first son, he refused at first. He disobeyed the father at first. And to a Jewish mind, what would they think? Oh, it's no big deal. Well, of course they don't. They're like, what? This should bring to mind the story of the prodigal son. When he went to his dad and said, hey, dad, give me my inheritance, what was he saying? I hate you so much, I wish you were dead. And in that culture at that time, he should have been taken outside the village by the town, by the men of the town, and stoned for what he had said to his dad. That's why that story when Jesus told it was shocking to the hearers. Here, the son refuses his dad. What? How dare he? But what goes on? What happens to this, this first son? What does he do? It's a change of mind and a change of action. Well, the change of mind, change of heart, and change of, it leads to a change of action. So he goes and does something. He goes and does the work like he's supposed to. Second son, same, same, hey, son, I want you to go work in the vineyard. The second son says, yeah, I got you, dad. I'll go do it. But what does he do? He shows disobedience, true disobedience. Now, this story, I hope you realize what's going on here, just even a little tidbit. Look, if at first you've lived a life of rejecting Christ, even though you know the truth, is there still hope for you? Yes, there is. That's in this story, it is. Okay? 
But those of you who've been raised in the church and, and, you know, and you say, well, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, God, but then you don't live the life, you're in the wrong category in this story. The key to this story is what? Obedience. Guys, I, I, there's, there's one thing about Christianity, I'm going to tell you straight up, it's about obedience. Jesus says, hey, if you love me, you will obey my commands. But again, his commands aren't burdensome. His commands aren't to steal life. The longer I live, the more that I see how my previous life to becoming a Christian, how ugly and gross it was and how much of a blessing it is to walk in God's ways. And then when I sin, choose to sin for a while as a Christian, yes, I still do <laughs> a lot. But when I, I, I I'll, and then I, I repent and then I start walking again with God, what do I see all the time? God's ways are always best. Why do I do this stuff? Read Romans chapter 7. Paul himself, why in the world do I sin? The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. So he had a struggle too, folks. But here's the deal. The change of heart. What was the difference between King Saul and King David? What? Whole heart, half heart. When, G when David got called out on his sin, he repented. Oh my goodness, he wrote a song about his sin. A song that the whole nation sang at the temple. That's what the Psalms were, you guys. It was the nation's hymnal. He wrote a public song admitting his guilt and how he felt when he lived in, in unrepentance. And then he wrote another song about what it felt after he repented. True repentance is that lack of caring who knows. They just want people to know, oh my goodness, God is forgiving. And yes, I was terrible, but thank God He forgave me. Look at God. Look how great He is. I want you all to know. That's repentance. A repentance that has a change in attitude, but it also leads to a change in action. And David did change his actions. King Saul didn't. When he was confronted by, you're reading this in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, but when, when King Saul was given a, a job to do, he was supposed to wait before going to battle. Samuel was supposed to show up, offer the sacrifices, pray, and get God's guidance. Saul couldn't wait. People are leaving. My army's deserting me. Oh, I got to do this. So he did the sacrifice. And then right after he does it, up walks Samuel. Samuel's like, what in the world did you just do? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I blew it, but just tell the people everything's good so we can go to war. Was that repentance? No, he wanted to save face. That's not a wholehearted devotion to God. Folks, you and I, we will blow it. That's, life is uh, ups and downs, right? And then there's steps forward, steps backward. But when you sin, real repentance is not just sorry, sorry, God, oh, I feel so bad. It's, yeah, sorry, but oh my goodness, please, God, forgive me. And then you start pursuing him again. It's a change of heart that leads to a change in action, okay? Let's get back to this. We're almost done. It's a simple story. The first son showed that change. The second son did not. It sounded good. Yes, I'll go, Dad, for sure. I'll do it. But he revealed his heart by his disobedience. And then Jesus says, well, which one did the will of the Father? Well, their, their answer was the right one. They got it. They got the point of the story. These religious leaders, yeah, it was, it was definitely the first son, the one who actually ended up obeying. And then Jesus gives them a very strong condemnation. Folks, listen to this. Truly I say to you, again, his own authority, the tax collectors. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's going on? Why is he bringing in tax collectors here? What's this Jesus doing? They were traitors to the Jewish people. These were Jews working for the Romans and stealing from. They were known to be greedy, fraudulent, stealing from the people, their own people, working for hated Gentile oppressors. They were number one on the bottom of the list in Jewish society. Uh-oh, what's he doing here? He's talking to us. He's talking about tax collectors now. And then he says... And who? The prostitutes. Oh, also number one on the bottom, the sexually immoral. Because if you were a prostitute and you had sex outside of marriage, what did the law say? Stone. 
Look at what he says. The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders, the biggest hitters in the land, in front of everyone on the Temple Mount. He's doing this publicly. What did he just say to them? He smacked them upside the head. That's the force of what's being said here. The lowest on the scale of righteous people, he's saying they're more righteous than you are. And he goes on to say why. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, what happened when they believed him? They changed, they repented, they got baptized. They become true followers of God, these tax collectors and these prostitutes. Here's the evidence of real change happening to unrighteous people, and it's happening, and the religious leaders didn't even recognize it. They just hated John because he called them out. He gives them a strong condemnation. He used the worst of the worst to to condemn the self-righteous, self-important religious leaders. He couldn't have used a more offensive compare and contrast. He couldn't have. He picked the worst. And that word before you could actually be, there's room for translating, instead of. See, again, the religious leaders thought when the Messiah came, they would be the ones getting the high fives from the Messiah. Yeah, guys, well done. You guys have been representing me well. Come on, you you guys get the places of authority. Yeah, let's get some robes on you and stuff. Yeah, you guys are awesome. That's what they were expecting, these religious leaders. And yet here's Jesus, the Messiah. Oh, man, their forerunner called them brood of vipers. Jesus calling them worse than tax collectors and prostitutes. Don't miss that condemnation. Guys, when Jesus was here, he acted with authority and power. Too often in the American church, we make him like our best friend. You guys, he is is the lover of our soul. But here's the deal. He does not overlook sin. He came to die to forgive that sin. But that death was an ugly death, taking on the wrath of God for our sins. It was... The, the price of our sin was His blood. We, can't, we have to make sure we understand what the fear of God is. Not to be, not to be oh God, but to have an, on, uh, an honest evaluation of who He is as the holy God and an honest evaluation of who we are. We want to cut ourselves slack all the time. Okay? I, I'm not putting aside grace and mercy and forgiveness. Please hear that. But But, you know, James says in James 4.10 that there's an appropriate time to mourn over your sin. When you've sinned, when I've sinned, there is an appropriate mourning that should happen. It's not about, hey, don't worry, be happy. There is an appropriate place for mourning over our sin. But there's great forgiveness, isn't there? Great forgiveness. And like I said, some did follow Jesus uh, out of this group of men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And then the last part, just, just to see the straightforward call. I mean, he, he, he talks about John and his way of righteousness, right? John came with the way of righteousness. It, it's a road here. What does the way of righteousness lead to that Jesus has always been talking about? The kingdom of God. And yet he's telling these hard-hearted religious leaders The worst of the worst, if they change their minds like that first son and repent and believe. That that word believe here is used three times in these two verses. Believe. Believe what? Believe what John said about Jesus. Believe what Jesus said about Jesus. To believe in Jesus. There's no way around it. So what? This this indictment's been handed out, but how does this apply to us? And you guys read up there, but... But first of all, we are responsible to do what the king has called us to do. Yes, we've been given a mission too. The Israelites have been given a mission. We've been given a mission. 18 through 20, the king tells us, go and make disciples. That's why I know I bring up Halloween. Again, you don't have to do what I'm going to do on Halloween. But it's, it's events like this or there's things going on in the community. You know, I was at the soccer game with... You know, we were watching the De La Mora with little Joseph or Joel play yesterday against little Nathaniel Shaw, so it was so fun. But we hear one of your team moms talking, hey, they have a trunk or treat on High Street. 
And, and it, there's, there's all sorts of activities where we as a church in this community can shine in little ways. But you can shine even in your neighborhood if you, you know, just want to maybe get a pamphlet and hand out to people. There's simple pamphlets. Again, that's not the magic formula, but I really encourage you guys, be praying how you can be more involved in shining as a light in this community. Seriously, we are called to be that. And, and it's not just on Halloween, but it's also in your workplace. Is there one to three people that you have prayed for every day for a month? When I was a youth pastor, we had this thing called Hearts in Transition, a little card, Hearts in Transition. It was a simple thing by another church. I borrowed it. It, it was called a hit list. Now, I tried to make it very clear. Some people are a little offended. All I meant is like, look, we're spiritual assassins. Who are we praying for? Because God uses the prayers of His people to accomplish much. So are you praying for the same person over and over and over and over and over again that God would save them? See, you, you can have all the greatest arguments in the world, but if God hasn't opened their eyes, they're not going to get saved. You could have the worst arguments of the world, just say, hey, Jesus loves you and you need to be saved. And God could use that if He's been opening their eyes. God, folks, I challenge us. We are responsible to do this, to reach our community. We're responsible as a church to shine. We've been given a mission as a church. That's why I do love being in this community center because we are in the midst of people going to play tennis and soccer and all that. We, it should be a reminder we are in the midst of a community that needs Jesus Christ, right? So I challenge you, let's, let's pray. Let's pray for this community. Let's pray that more people become Christians. It's going to get messy because tax collectors and prostitutes will come here and get saved. And then we got to disciple them. I was of the lowest of the low. Any of you? Jesus saves, doesn't he? <laughs> I saw that. That was funny. Guys, Jesus saves the worst to do the best with them. Right on? I went off my notes, but that's okay. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Thank you so much for the hope we see even in the midst of your you know, confronting these religious leaders, Lord, to see that even in the midst of this, they, they too, even though they're being condemned, there's that hope that if they would change their minds and believe in Him, that they would be allowed to follow and, and be allowed into the kingdom. You will even offer chances for grace and mercy in the midst of all this. So, Lord, I, I pray that we would not lose sight of that. I pray that we would also realize the responsibility we have. God, you've put us here in Moore Park on purpose. Lord, help us to shine, help us to be the light, help us to be salt here, uh, preserving this community for you, uh, uh, adding flavor to this community for you, to uh, cause a, a thirst for you. So God, I pray that as people see us in our regular lives, Lord, that they would wonder about this hope that we have, and Lord, that we'd be courageous to give answers. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you are doing and have done. But Lord, we want more. We want to see more people become Christians to find hope, help, forgiveness, and eternal life through you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand as we... Uh...